Morning. Okay, um, I'm a grandpa now. Oh, yeah. A lot of people, like, are embarrassed of that. I'm, like, so into it, it's crazy. Uh, anyway, I just had to tell everybody that, because that's what I've been doing for a week, telling everybody that and showing pictures. Anyway, okay, today, um, Lord willing, we're going to finish our faith series uh, that over the Epistle of James. Uh, and I've really enjoyed this study. There's just so much in here that speaks to us, and it's so applicable. But just quickly to catch you up again, this is the last time I get to do it. Um, this was written by James, the brother or half-brother of Jesus. Uh, and he wrote this to Jews who had become believers who were scattered throughout Palestine. Uh, and the reason he wrote to them is they were being persecuted by absolutely everybody. So there was a great temptation to give up. There was a great temptation just to stand in the background and be quiet because they were sick of being persecuted. So James wrote them to encourage them to keep standing firm in their faith. Now, as he wraps up, he's going to use his last words to encourage people to prayer and to perseverance. And that's what we titled the message today, Prayer and Perseverance. So he gives three main charges we're going to look at today, uh, or challenges to his readers. Uh, and those uh, challenges or charges are to make honesty and prayer and restoration a priority. And he finishes with that. Remember, the end of a letter is usually the climax. So this was so important to him, he saved this for the very end. Uh, but all three of these are going to be very important if they were going to continue to persevere. So let's jump right in today. We're going to go to James chapter 5, starting in verse 12. I know Nate covered this a little bit last week, but it says, Above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, uh, or with any other oath. But your yes is to be yes, and your no is to be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now, in the Jewish culture, making oaths was pretty common. Okay, they would make oaths, uh, and they would make, like, swears on things. It was pretty, it was pretty common, uh, and the traditional Jew did that to put emphasis on what they were saying or to, uh, to make it seem like they were really serious about that truth. So it was kind of an emphasis thing. And they would say things like, I swear on the throne of God. Right? They would say things like that. Uh, or they would say, I, I swear on my life, or I swear on the holy city of Jerusalem. They would say things like that. Um, and we know they would say things like that because Jesus addressed the same issue in Matthew's gospel. Look at Matthew 25, starting in verse 33. It says, again, you have heard the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the uh, city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this, uh, these is evil. So, the reason they made these oaths in the first place was they had a misunderstanding of a passage in Leviticus, okay? In Leviticus 19.11, it says, You shall not steal, nor deal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane, to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Now, these verses, what they were trying to teach them was that just be honest. Be honest and you know, keep your word and people will believe you. That's what they were trying to teach them through these verses. They were not trying to teach them that there was a necessity to make oaths and keep them. They were just saying, listen, if, if, you, if you say something, do it. Don't make an oath and then break it. That's what it was basically saying. But at that time, some of these people were using oaths to sell their lies. They would say, I swear on the throne of God and then tell a lie. 
usually to manipulate somebody or to take something from somebody or to steal from somebody. And that was why that, uh, God wrote that down or had that written down because he knew that that was going to be a problem. And people, he didn't want people seeing his people being dishonest and looking at them as liars. So he said, don't, don't make oaths like that and break them in my name. And, but he definitely wasn't saying make stronger oaths. So what Jesus was saying when he talked about it was, why swear on things you have absolutely no control over? And if you think about it, you really don't. I mean, the world tells us we have control, right? But we honestly don't. God is the one who's in charge. And James talked about that in the, earlier when we were studying this book uh, in chapter 4. He basically told us you don't have power over your life. You have no promise of tomorrow. Everything you have is based on God and his control. So why would you say, I swear on my life? Your life isn't yours. He can take it or he can extend it. You have no power over that. I like the example he used. He said, you can't turn one hair white or gray. Or, I'm, if, believe me, if you could, I would have no gray if you could change the color of your hair. So he's basically saying you have absolutely no control. So what's the point of making vows on things you have no control over? In order to make a vow on something, you have to be able to control it, and we don't. So why was this topic something that James and Jesus decided was worthy of addressing? Mainly because we're supposed to try to be like Jesus. That is the goal, to try to be like Jesus. And Jesus was known for being honest all the time, even if it hurt, even if it endangered his life. So even the people who didn't believe in Jesus, they knew that he was honest, right? And the reason the Pharisees feared him is because his honesty was turning people's lives over. And so he was known for that. So we should try to be like that. We should desire to have that same trust and have people trust us like they trusted him so that we can have influence uh, in their lives. As believers, I mean, we shouldn't be go around making oaths. You know, we should be honest enough to where we don't have to make oaths for people to believe us. Our culture still does it. Have you ever noticed that? People say, oh, I'm serious, I swear to God. You ever hear that? Or no, I swear on my life. Well, here's the one that kills me. I swear on my children's lives. I'm like, I bet your children appreciate that. <laughs> you know, they say dumb stuff like that. And it's usually over something stupid. Oh, you are not going to believe this. Pork chops are on sale at Albright's. I swear to God. Yeah, I didn't, I wasn't going to question on the whole pork chop thing, just so you know. You know, we just got ourselves in this habit of, of making these oaths to make it, what we say sound legitimate when what James is saying is, I got an idea, just always tell the truth, and you'll never have to do that. If people know you for truth, they're not going to question what you say. So that just shows that honesty is a priority if you do it that way. Now, making prayer a priority, James 5.13. He said, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Now, prayer, in my opinion, is the most important yet unused and, and, and underappreciated gifts that God has given us as believers. It's, it's very neglected, if you will. James knew that he wanted his readers to embrace the power that comes with prayer. He really knew how important it was, and he really wanted them to embrace that. Right? So it was so important to him that he added it to his closing comments, which again is the most important part of a book generally. Right? And James mentioned some very specific applications and, and aspects of prayer in verses 13 through 15. Uh, and those applications he mentioned included suffering uh, and how the sick should pray. Right? And this is really, really important. We're going to take a long look at that in a minute. I'm trying to get to it. Uh, but he also included something called the prayer uh, offered in faith. Now, the main reason people don't pray generally, and this is from, you know, 20 plus years of ministry, uh, here's some reasons people don't pray. A lot of times it's guilt or shame will keep people from praying. Or uh, pride will keep people from praying. And discouragement. Those are usually the ones that will keep people from praying or pull people away uh, from, their, 
from their prayer life. Now, the guilt or shame aspect, that's the result of not trusting God to forgive our sins. Have you ever done something as a believer? Now, don't be one of those believers who say, I don't sin, because now you're one of those believers we like to call a liar. Okay, everybody sins. But have you ever done something and you're so ashamed of yourself, it's hard to pray about it. It's hard. It's like when your kids do something and they come and talk to you and they can't make eye contact. You know something's up. You know, hey, did you break that? I don't know what you're talking about, Mom. You know, they won't look at you. Well, that's because there's guilt and shame. Sometimes we have that same guilt and shame, and that bothers me. It bothers me because we shouldn't have guilt and shame to go to the one who gave his son for us. That shouldn't be something we're guilty about. You know, here's the thing. I think we've forgotten that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are paid for already. That's hard for people to grasp, and I'll explain it a little bit here in a minute. But, but the fact that you sin isn't surprising God. So when he sent Jesus to the cross, he covered the sins in the past and the ones you would commit. Right? Now look at this in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 14. He says, For by one offering he, being Jesus, uh, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind, and I will write them. He, uh, he then says, and their sin and their lawless deeds, I will what? Remember. Remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer what? Any offering for sin. Listen, what he's saying is, Jesus had to forgive all your sins, past, present, and future. Because he's not going to keep coming back and being sacrificed time and time again to cover all the new ones. Right? The moment he was sacrificed, that blood was shed for every sin you would ever commit. So when you feel guilt and shame, remember, you're going to God to have a restorative prayer. You're saying, God, restore me to fellowship with you. Right? Restore me to a right relationship with you. Because the reason you feel kind of set aside and awkward is sin separates you relationally from God. God's like, listen, you know what's wrong in your life. All you have to do is confess it and we'll be good again. Have you ever got into it with a friend or family member? Anybody? You liars. <laughs> you need to come to my family reunion if you ain't been into it with your family. Right? And you ever notice the awkwardness when you're around them until you make it right? You know, it's just weird and you try to act like nothing's wrong, but you can see it all over your face that it's still weird. Right? That's what happens when we sin against God and try to hide it. It's going to be weird. It's not going to feel right. Because God knows there's something between you and him, and it's that unconfessed sin. And the reason that disturbs God so bad is he made it so easy for you to wash that away and get your relationship right again. Look at 1 John 1, 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. Can you imagine? I mean, God's saying, why are you ashamed? I made an allotment for this very situation. My son died for this very situation. I know what you've done. You're not hiding it from me. So why don't you confess it? And if you do, I'll cleanse it. And we'll relationally be where we need to be again. Right? Now, the pride that keeps us from praying is usually the result of this carnal desire we have to be independent. See, our society pushes individualism to a ridiculous level. And it pushes it hard. And too many believers buy into that doctrine that it's all about the individual. Right? And if you think about it, society's doctrine on individualism is actually hypocritical, right? Because they tell you, be an individual, don't let anyone be in control of you, yet every day they're trying to make you more dependent on the government. Have you ever noticed that? 
And you know why they're trying to make you more dependent on the government? Because the Bible says that Satan is the prince and the power of the air. He's the God of this present age. He's running things in the carnal world, right? And if the government can have control over you, then he can have control over you. Because trust me, he controls the government. Trust me, okay? Watch news for three minutes. You'll find out he controls the government, okay? So when they say be individuals, what they're really saying is be separated from God. Be individual apart from him, but be dependent on us. It's kind of hypocritical. That's, that's what they're saying. So it, this whole attempt at individualism that they're pushing on us and on our children is just an attempt to separate us from God. That's all it is. Now, the discouragement that keeps us from praying is the result of self-centeredness. And I know this is going to rub some people wrong, but that's what I do. But we pray for things we don't need, or we pray for things that God doesn't want us to have. And when God says no, we get discouraged. Basically, our discouragement, another word for it is pouting, right? We are pouting because we didn't get our way. So we pray for something God said no, or he said we didn't need it. So just like a little kid, we take our ball and go home because we're mad that God didn't do things our way, and that makes us just stop praying. I'm not going to pray if he's not going to give me what I want. Well, newsflash, it's not the drive-up window at McDonald's. You don't get everything you order. And crap, you don't get everything you order at McDonald's when you go through, I'm just saying, right? So that's, that's where that discouragement comes from. Now, James knew how important a prayer life is, and he knew that if you were going to endure the trials and the struggles that were happening at that time, they would have to learn to be in prayer with God regularly, right, regularly. And I feel like we forget that in our prayer, there's, there's making requests, and there's also recognizing what God's already done. That's why he said, you know, let him who suffers pray, and let the one who's cheerful sing praises. You know, God loves to bless us. He loves to bless us. We always act like God is this cruel God who's just dying to judge us. Listen, do you love to bless your kids? Do you like to get your kids that bike? Do you like to get your kids things? Listen, he is infinitely more in love with us as our father, and he wants to bless us. He wants to do good things for us. But he does want us to recognize the good things he's already done. Has anybody here ever felt guilty because one day this realization hits you that the last 20 times I've prayed, all I've done is ask for stuff. I've, I haven't thanked him for anything I already have. I haven't said, thank you, Jesus, that I have a healthy wife and children and grandchildren. <laughs> right? You know, we rarely do we do that. I think a lot of times we treat God like an ATM. We just put the card in and get what we want. You know, when in reality, God's saying, listen, I want to bless you. But I'm not going to let you be a spoiled child. You've got to recognize that I have been blessing you already. Maybe thank me for a thing or two. So he's saying, if you're suffering, pray. But if things are going well, stop for a second and give God some praise. You know? Have you ever noticed that God gets blamed for everything that goes wrong in our lives? Drives me crazy. People get mad at God because their marriage broke up. And I'm like, you sure it wasn't because you were staying away from your wife for weeks at a time? You know? No, it's got to be God's fault. It's God's fault if we lose our job. It's God's fault if we get sick. But when everything goes right, do we ever stop and say, thank you, Jesus, for how good my life is? No, he just gets the blame, right? So that's why he said, listen, it's okay when you're suffering to pray. Just remember that when things are going well, make sure you sing praises. Okay, now, we're starting to get into the meat of this, okay? And this is some stuff that might be opposite of what a lot of you have learned up to this point. So James 5, 14 and 15, this is make restoration a priority. He says, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Has anybody else in this room ever struggled with that passage? Anybody ever struggle with that? Because if you read it on face value, something inside you says that's not true. Because think about it. It says, call the elders if you're sick and you will be healed. But it's not always God's will to heal people. It's just not always his will to heal people, right? So let's look at this. So he's talking about how the sick should pray and and the prayer offered in faith. So James said the sick should call for the elders and pray for them and anoint them with oil. Here's where it gets tricky. What does James mean by is anyone among you sick? What does he mean by that, okay? Now, I don't believe James was talking about random physical illness here. I don't believe that's what he was talking about. And when you break it down in the Greek, it can't be talking about that. This isn't talking about just random illnesses. And I'll give you some reasons why. Okay, first of all, normal elders don't have any more prayer power than any other believer. Okay, listen, I'm an elder, I'm a pastor. But I'm telling you, any one of you who knows and loves Jesus has just as much access and power with God as I do. Okay, I'm not better than you and you're not better than me. That's the beauty. The only person that's better than any of us is Jesus. That's it. All of us have access to the Father. So the first problem I have is elders don't have any more prayer power than anybody else. They don't have that, right? Now, with the exception of the apostles, they were the only ones that had, you know, this healing ability that was arbitrary. But beyond that, you don't see in the Bible where we have any more pull. So calling the elders would be no more effective than praying yourself if it were just sickness, all right? Second, he said to anoint them with oil, and a lot of people say, well, that's medicinal. Correct. It was, using for, it was used for medicinal purposes at that time, but it also represented the Holy Spirit because, yes, they brought it and used it for medicine, but when they anointed a king or anointed a priest, they used oil to anoint them to represent the Spirit of God resting upon them in their new office, okay? So it doesn't always have to mean that someone's actually physically sick. Third, again, excluding the apostles, the Bible never promises to heal anyone. It just, he never promises that everybody who prays to be healed will be healed. Yet James said the one being prayed for and anointed would be restored. Okay, so if this is a real physical illness, then people will say, well, when I prayed and had the elders pray for me, my cancer didn't go away. What does God have against me? Believing that this is a physical illness, I think, can actually damage some people's faith, right? Because James also said the one being prayed for would be raised up. Not everyone is. Not everyone is when you pray for them. I've prayed for people in hospitals who have come completely full circle, and I always give that credit to God. I am no healer. I talked to the healer, and he healed them, right? And I've prayed for people, and it just wasn't his will. Both are perfect, and I accept them. Right? So it's really important we understand that, that raised up in the Greek here is, is the Greek word agero, and it means restored. He's saying the one who is prayed for will be restored. Restored to what? Well, we'll talk about that. So he even went as far as to say that not only would they be restored, but the one who called for the elders and was anointed with oil would have their sins forgiven. You see how this is starting to walk away from a normal physical illness? It just wouldn't make sense, and I'll, I'll keep explaining, trust me. Right? But as we saw earlier in 1 John 1, 9, God doesn't promise to, to heal everybody, but he does promise to restore anyone who confesses their sin back into fellowship with him. That promise is for everyone every time. 
No one that confesses their sin to God and prays for forgiveness will be turned down. No one. That is an absolute. It's very, very important. So what I believe is going on here is I believe, according to the Greek, this is talking about the person who is out of the will of God. And they're sick of it, so they call for the elders because they're ready to confess and have them pray with them and anoint them with oil, which was the custom, right? So that they can get back in a right relationship with God. Now that makes sense. Now, could it have a physical illness uh, as a part of it? Yes, because there are illnesses that, co- that, <laughs> that come as a result of our sin. And it tells us about that in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, it says, Therefore, whoever eats of the bread and drinks of the cup uh, of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge his body rightly. For this reason, listen, for this reason, many among you are weak and what? And sick and a number sleep, which literally the Hebrews didn't like the word death. So when they would use sleep or slumber, they were talking about death. So he's saying some of you are weak because of this sin, some of you are sick, and some of you have actually died. See, what was happening was the Corinthian church was a problem. Okay, if you read First and Second Corinthians... They were a problem. They were always, always getting in trouble. Okay, and here what they started doing was they were using the Lord's Supper as, a, as an opportunity to get drunk, to gluttonize, and, and to use their personal bias to keep people from taking part with them. They took something that was supposed to be beautiful and godly and made it just like the world. And he's saying, because you're mocking the Lord's Supper, you're eating the Lord's Supper in vain, and won't repent of it, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you have died. So do I believe that this could have an element of illness to it when they ask for the elders to come? Yes, but it would have to be an illness that came as a result of sin that was unconfessed. That's the only thing that will match in the Greek, right? Now, if you look at the context of the entire book, it's about enduring suffering and enduring persecution, and I just don't believe he drifted that far off the reservation to start talking about healing. He was talking about having the elders help you pray to get forgiveness for the sin in your life and get you back in a right relationship with God. This is not talking about just any illness. And the reason I think this is so important that we understand is not only will the Greek not support the other, but also, do you know how many people's faith has been damaged because they said, well, the Bible said if I called for the elders and they anointed me with, uh, you know, with oil, I'd be, I'd be healed, and I did that, and I'm not healed. So what does God have against me? My son was sick, and so I called for the elders and had them anoint him with oil, and he didn't get better. What does God have against my son? You see, that's what the danger is of just towing the party line with doctrine. You have to make sure it makes sense. This is not talking about normal physical illness. This is talking about trying to be restored to God because there's sin in your life or an illness that's a result of sin. Now, so when he talks about the prayer offered in faith, it was just an honest prayer and confession with complete faith in God's ability to restore them to a right relationship. That's all it's talking about. So that even makes more sense when you look at what he says in verses 16 through 18. In verses 16 through 18, James discussed the confession of sin and the effectiveness of prayer. Look at this. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Now, I'm going to stop for a second. Gossips wish that this meant just walk around telling each other what you do wrong, right? That's not what this is talking about. I just want to throw that out there. But... That's another topic. Anyway, therefore, confess your sins uh, to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. 
The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain on the earth, uh, and it produced its fruits. So when you see the therefore in verse 16, it says therefore. That links you to the previous verses. It's a connecting word is what it's called. All right? It connects those verses together, therefore. There's an old saying, if you see a therefore, see what it's there for. Right? And that means it's connecting two verses. Okay? Now, verse 16 is not a verse about confessing your sins to random believers or confessing them to the church. Listen, if you want your life to get worse, start telling everybody about your sin. Okay? Because that's when it really gets bad. And people say, oh, believers wouldn't do that. How many do you know? Two? Because I've been around believers for 25 plus years, and I'll be honest with you, they don't have any problem gossiping. And if you run around talking about your sin to each other, this is not, there's going to be a real problem start. That's not what he's talking about here. God has never required you confess to other people for forgiveness. He requires that you confess to his son. You confess through his son. He sent his son to die on a cross, not so you could get forgiveness from a man. Not so that someone as an authority figure can wave their hand and wipe your sin away. Jesus died on a cross, that wiped your sin away. And if you, need to, if you want to confess your sin, that's who you confess it to. This is not talking about just randomly talking to people about your sin. Instead, James is uh, continuing his discussion about restoration that he just talked about in verses 14 and 15. He was saying that because confession and prayer restore people, keep doing it. When there's sin in your life, keep doing it. Keep confessing. The word healed in the Greek here is eomai, and it means renewed. As long as you're willing to do this, God will continue to renew you. So James, James wanted his readers to learn from and practice the examples he talked about in 14 and 15. If you're struggling finding your way back to God, call for the elders. And you can confess it to them and say, I'm struggling, help me. How do I get back into a right relationship with God? And then they can anoint you and pray with you. So he's, he was actually encouraging what he said in those previous verses, and that's really important. So basically what he was saying is since there's res, uh, restoration found in corporate prayer... When you're struggling with sin, don't be afraid to reach out to an elder or a trusted believing friend and seek God's forgiveness and restoration. That's basically what he was saying there. Okay, it wasn't talking about physical healing again or confessing to other people. Now, I love how he used the example of Elijah. Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. I think it would have made his point for six months. Anybody else think that would have made his point? He was trying to make a point to someone, you know, and so I'm thinking... You know, one month of hot, steamy weather, I'll believe anything you say. Get rid of it, right? Three and a half years, no rain, complete drought. And only when he prayed, God opened the sky back up, did the rain flow again, right? This was talking about how powerful prayer is. Basically, it's saying if you're praying for God's will, you put, prayer puts the power of God at your fingertips. You can pray according to his will, and God will work through you as long as it's according to his will. Now, lastly, James discusses the value of of helping a believer in sin turn back to God. Now, (laughs) this verse is kind of funny because you'll see a lot of the faith and life people that, you know, believe name it, claim it movement. They'll use those verses about, you know, uh, you know, have them come and put anoint you with oil and you'll be healed. They use that to swindle people. Um, But this one is used a lot of times the wrong way and see if you can pick it up. James 5, 19, 20 says, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, And one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways shall save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. (laughs) 
I've literally heard people teach this, that if you go out and find somebody that's struggling and turn them back, God will cover up all your sins. So would your motives be right? Man, my life is a mess. I've got to find somebody worse than me and turn them back to God so I can get all this wiped clean. Can you imagine? And that's what a lot of people think this means. And it, and it cracks me up because that's so self-centered. Gosh, everything's going wrong. Somebody find me a sinner that I can turn back. You know, that's not what he's teaching here. Not what he's teaching at all. And this is one of those passages, if you don't look at the Greek, it'd be easy to misunderstand. So he's continuing with this theme of restoration. But this restoration's a little different. In verses 14 and 15, there was someone who was out of the will of God seeking help. They wanted someone to help them get back in a right relationship with God. They were initiating that that time of prayer and restoration. But in verses 19 and 20, this is talking about you noticing someone has strayed and loving them enough to confront them. And that is loving, as long as you're not being judgmental. But I don't know about you guys, is that a little intimidating? When you see somebody out of the will of God, because you're always afraid that they're going to think you're what? Judging them, self-righteous, right? But the truth is, if you see me in sin, don't worry about that. Come and tell me. Come and tell me because the things that, that I'm going to face if I don't get away from that sin are much worse than your fears. All right, So that's really, really important. This is just a willingness to confront. And James said that making that attempt would do two things. First, it could save them. Now listen, hold on. The word save here is the Greek word sozo. It means to deliver. It says save his soul. The word soul is suke. It means life. It's where we get our word psychic, psych, uh, psyche from. Okay, it means life. So it will save his life from death. This is the word thanatos, and it means spiritual death or separation from God is what that means. So basically, James was saying that restoring such a person will deliver them from any further consequences of their sin, including the discipline of God. It would deliver them from that, right? Now, the second thing restoring uh, the straying brother would do is it would cover a multitude of sins. And this isn't talking about your sins, right? But no matter how far gone that person is, listen, I don't understand why Christians give up on people. Somebody help me with that. But I have witnessed it time and time again. Christian people saying, well, my brother-in-law, he's been doing this and this, and he used to be such a good man, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, have you talked to him? Ah, no use. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't have that mentality? Because he'd have taken one look at my life, if I were the only person alive, and said, forget it. Let's start another planet. You know what I mean? That's what would have happened. I don't know why we give up on people. It doesn't matter what people have done, how bad they've become. If you can go to them and turn them from that through prayer and the word of God, he'll forgive all of it. And that should be enough motivation for us to go to those people we love or work with or our friends and lovingly confront them and try to lead them back because no matter how bad it is, they're not too far gone for God to reach down and lift up. I wish people would remember that. We live in a time right now that is crazy. Absolutely crazy. Anybody else afraid to turn the TV on, afraid you're going to hear something else that's nuts? You know, I, I don't even watch the news anymore. But you know one thing I do watch? I watch people that I'm close to, and if I see them getting pulled away by this stuff, I try to pull them aside and say, listen, remember, we have a home in heaven. This isn't home. Remember, no matter what the government's doing, God's in control. Remember that no matter how bad the world gets, someday we're going to be taken out of it. Don't let them suck you in and pull you away from your real mission. That's basically what he was trying to say here at the end. Now, that, 
That completes this series on James. And I hope this study has spoken to each of you and encouraged you because I'll be honest with you, every time I struggle and there's something wrong in my life, I read the book of James. I was going through a real hard time in my life a long time ago and uh, I read that book every night until God would show me some peace because I just felt like it was designed to teach people like me who were struggling and just didn't know what to do. So I hope this book has moved you like that because it certainly has moved me. So next week we'll start in 1 Peter. I'm going to ask you would please bow your heads. Now, if this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. And we don't ask people to come up front or put pressure on people. We just don't do that. What I do is I just want to pray for you. Because I remember sitting out in the seats and hearing a preacher say, if you'd like me to pray, lift your hand. I'm thinking, there's no way I'm doing that as my hand went up. So this is just an opportunity for me to pray for you while every head is bowed. If you'd like me to pray for you, just make eye contact with me. Put, bless those people and put your head right back down. Bless those people. I'll be praying for you. Bless those people. And if I don't see it, God does. If you're watching or listening online, God sees it. But I say this every week. I really want to pray for believers because one of the things I think that's so wrong with this world are believers are too quiet. We sit in the background and let the world pass us by rather than being actively involved in implanting Jesus into every facet of this world we can. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I am stunned that you can love someone like me. Only you and I know what I've done, and yet your mercy and your grace were stronger. Despite who I was and what I've done, you offered me an opportunity to have eternal life free of charge just by believing in the work of your son Jesus. I can't understand grace like that, but I am so thankful it exists. So if there's someone who doesn't know you, listening or watching or among us, it's not our duty to judge that. But speak to their heart and let them know that they don't have to have anything to trade. They don't have to change. They just have to believe, and you'll make the changes you need to make. Whatever's holding them back, remove it. And if they make that decision, I pray they contact us. We would love to walk with them in their new faith journey. God, for those of us who are believers, God, wake us up. We know you created all things, and we know your promises are true. And we know this world is just temporary, but God, we don't want to be spectators watching it fall apart. Give us the wisdom and the strength to stand up for what's right and to lovingly share this message of hope called the gospel. We just thank you, God, for all that you do. We ask you to leave as we leave here to keep us safe and bless us to live what we profess. But most importantly, God, if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.